Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Market Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle. Uh, once again this week recording uh, remotely as we are all now officially uh, in government lockdown. Our second week uh, of doing this um, and it's proving a great opportunity to get some different voices from the companies team on the podcast. Um, and today, as well as hearing from Phil Oakley in the second half of this podcast, we're going to be speaking to Alex Newman, who's out in Spain, uh, a real remote working veteran. How are you doing, Alex? Yes, I've been here. I've been here. Uh, uh, before and away, but yeah, we're on day thirteen of full-blown lockdown. So it's a, it's a six hundred euro fine if I uh, walk in the street for any reason other than uh, buying food or, or pharmaceuticals. So yeah, getting used to it. But I, I, I'm happy to act as the sort of canary in the coal mine for mental well-being uh, for you guys, given that I'm about a week and a bit ahead. Well, we're, we're all allowed out jogging and pretty much to do whatever we like. And I think every retailer in the land has decided that they're a key retailer. So uh, nothing much appears to have changed. And in fact, you know, I went out for a jog yesterday and there, there seems to be more people on the streets than, than I'd ever seen before. So <laughs> it's, it's, it's a very liberal lockdown, I think they've called it. Um, anyway, good to, have, good to have you on, Alex. The cover feature this week is actually the SIP special, which is a little little supplement that goes out with the mag. But you've written what is essentially the, the sort of lead feature in the magazine itself, uh, looking at the the dividend crisis and how to survive it. So what we've seen are absolutely swathes of dividends being cut uh, across the market, unsurprisingly. Talk, talk us through what's happening, Alex. Yeah, so, I mean, obviously, it's uh, it's another blow to investors. I mean, once you had the, the massive sell-offs uh, of the last few weeks, this is sort of a one-two punch in that dividends are now being axed all over the place. I mean, something like £4 billion worth of payouts have been cut in the last week. Um, we're seeing some pretty big names uh, are cutting. And it's not just companies whose dividends were, you know, were maybe looking uh, unlikely. Uh, and we've seen some estimates, including from AJ Bell, the stockbroker, that you know the final sum could be around uh, £30 billion, or so that's about one third of the FTSE 100's projected dividend total for the year being cut. I mean, that assumes that this crisis goes around for or leads to about four months of disruption to cash flow, which, you know, is, is a big assumption at the moment anyway. So, um, so yeah, the, the toll is accelerating and uh, it's, it's yeah, it's, it's, it's looking pretty significant for investors' income this year. I mean, it was accelerating even as we were putting the magazines to the printers. I think when the first draft I saw was 1.3 billion yeah. and then by the time we went to press, it was something like 2.9 and then four today and, and potentially 30 in the future. So yeah, this is uh, this is very, very bad news for anyone who's reliant on uh, equities for, for income. Um, who, who's been cutting? I mean, is it, are there any trends behind um, which, which industries have been cutting, which sort of companies have been cutting? Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, some of the cuts are hardly a surprise. I mean, Marston's, for example, the, the pub group, they look like they're going to they cut their £20 million interim payout. But I mean, their cover was already stretched before this crisis and they, you know, had a mountain of debt. You know, there's no real question whether a dividend can be paid given they're effectively not allowed to operate at the moment. So... Marston's was one Phil actually looked at in one of his columns, and yeah, the, the signs were there, as he likes to say. Yeah, so there's you know there there are a few companies out there which you know there's no real surprises that that given a, a massive crisis that was just always going to be the tipping point. But we it, it's been it's been really uh, cross sector and, and quite broad. So to varying degrees, other blue chip names have either cut out of necessity or caution. So we've seen Intercontinental Hotels, uh, Kingfisher, ITV. You know these are all size sizable payouts. You know of at least a hundred million pounds. Um, yeah, ITVs was two hundred sixteen million. Yeah, looking at the exactly. table you put so, together. ITV is one of the biggest. Um, I thought one of the mo- one of the most interesting cuts really um, have been the companies with probably enough cash on hand to make it through to the end of twenty twenty. So, for example, Microfocus, they got you know lots of cash. They say there's relatively little impact so far, and as a soft company you know they should obviously be better insulated than a, a pub group um, but they've retroactively cancelled their dividend because they've essentially completely reset their their risk appetite and out of a, a, you know an abundance overabundance of caution they're just doing everything they can to to you know basically foolproof the the, the business for what is in, you know enormous uncertainty in the in the in the months ahead who knows how they're Client basis is going to be affected, so there's really no dividend potentially that's uh, that's uh, that's entirely safe at the moment. When you, when you say retroactively, this is a dividend they've already announced and they've announced when they were planning to pay it. So so if you, even if a company that you own shares in has announced a, a dividend, given you an ex dividend date, a pay date, it, it might not come. Yeah, exactly. And I mean that's that's been the same for the the house builders, which I think is another interesting example. Is that they they kind of tend to move as a herd, and when you're saying that the, the dividend 
tally was mounting yesterday when we were going to press. That was partly because um, we, we had, I think, Taylor Wimpy and Persimmon adding to the list of cuts. And their, their capital return programmes this year were pretty big. We're talking billions of pounds um, in investor income. That was one of the significant attractions of that sector, the, the, the level of income that was being, or the level of dividends that were being paid. And essentially that's now back to zero. Pretty much or, or been suspended in, in some cases. But, you know, they had mountains of cash on their balance sheets as well. These, I mean, these are about as secure a dividend as you could hope for that you know we're expecting potentially a, a slight downturn in that in the housing market and, and the good times weren't seen to be continuing to roll as as they have been in in recent years but they had really you know this art this arsenal of um of uh, of cash that they were you know they're going to sort of hose investors with for the next three years so until a month ago you'd probably say that was the the safer sector and they have all on mass decided to adopt this incredibly cautious approach to cash management and and really, this is this is probably a trend that investors should look out for: is that once a peer breaks ranks and say, you know, we're we're going to cut the dividend, it seems to be that others are following suit um, pretty rapidly. Hence the hence the spate of cuts for the house builders this week. I mean, I do understand why the house builders would be cautious. You can't imagine a lot of people buying houses at the moment. I mean, you, if you can't get out to look at them, what what can you do? You know, you're not going to buy something uh, necessarily off plan if you don't don't know where it is or what it looks like. Absolutely, but I, I suppose the ball case you would say is that you know, if, if this is a a six-month hit potentially to, to economic activity. They have enough cash on hand to ride through, and if they wanted to keep on, on, on you know, maintain their their investment, their income-based investment case, they could do. So it just goes to show that you know the level of caution and worry potentially within you know within the, the C-suites of of you know even the the, the safest dividend stocks. Okay, so I mean we, we've heard about cuts. Who hasn't cut? You know, are there any? Yeah, I mean, we talk about safety. Is there anywhere that investors can look to find something that is perhaps a little bit more secure at these uh, these very very uncertain times? In the piece, we've sort of highlighted the the largest dividend payers, not by yield but by by size of payout. Looking at their payouts from from last year, and I think as a general rule, it's it's going to be harder for the the largest payers of dividends to cut. That's not to say they won't cut. I think in many cases there will be cuts, but you would typically expect them to be more enthralled to a uh, an, inv- an investor base made up of pension funds and the like, which really do need the income. So the likes of Shell and BP, you know, obviously been absolutely battered by the the collapse in the oil price, but they have been they have been here before in in seeing major hit to demand and issues with supply, which have, have caused sort of collapse in prices. Um, I mean, they're, they're effectively going to be paying their dividends this year from debt. So, I mean, that's not that's not a good look and it's obviously not sustainable. Um, but they are... It's not, an enti- it's not an entirely new thing either, paying dividends out of debt for these... Yeah. So, so when the oil price collapsed in, in, in between 2014 and 2016, they, um, they kept paying their, their dividends. It was sort of the... Almost the last thing that was going to go, so they they could cut massive capex projects, um, reduce costs wherever possible, and even expand their balance sheet. You know the, the debt on their balance sheet. The the dividends were, it seemed, never going to go. And I suppose the thing you would say with the oil market is that demand there at least hasn't collapsed in the way it has for, for some sectors. And you would expect in time, just you know, because nothing is sustainable at twenty five dollars a barrel crude that there will be some self-correction in the market and prices will have to rise because no one is making money apart from Saudi Arabia, but even then, barely any um, at the moment. So I'd expect their dividends to be safe for this year. I mean, obviously, if things continue, you know, it'd be unprecedented, really, um, since the Second World War for Shell to cut its dividend. But you have to expect in 2021 that would be revisited if, if oil is, is still well below $40 a barrel. I mean, they've given themselves a very big caveat. Um, I think they've announced that they, they can offer no assurance over future dividend payments or whether they'll match or exceed previous dividend payments. So they, they've given themselves a get-out should they go and get even tougher. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, they do have some uh, flexibility. They had an enormous share buyback programme, which they're suspending now, which, again, you know, just raises the question of are share buybacks ever worth it? If, you know, now is the time with the, sh- the shares in the trough You'd, you'd imagine companies should be buying their back their own shares. Well, they were um, buying them at the top instead. <laughs> exactly, um, which is always the case, really. Um, uh, and they also, uh, 
uh, yeah, and they have also have options on potentially the script dividend, but obviously that's uh, that has its its own complications. So um, I'd say I'd say I'd say the super majors for now. We could probably expect their dividends to be safe. Phil uh, highlighted a few utility stocks in his surviving the sell off piece the the other week. I'd say those are probably the greatest uh, pockets of safety. Ditto. You know, sort of infrastructure investment stocks is a, is a couple out there which have some safety. But um, but yeah, as for as for the other really big um, dividend payers, I mean, we can certainly forget about buybacks and special dividends for the the banking sector. But I said I think there's probably a real risk that the likes of Lloyd's and RBS, to a lesser extent Barclays and HB, HSBC, have will have to cut their dividends as well because um, their risk weighted assets are going to be rising, loan impairments going up, and that is really one of the few levers they have to uh, balance their capital levels and you know ensure things don't get dangerous um well, low interest rates must be horrific for them as well their, their net interest margin has has vanished essentially yeah i mean they have they have back books of you know mortgages written when interest rates were slightly higher so there is you know a slight buffer but yeah, I mean, really, if you think about Lloyds and RBS, they are closest thing we have to a pure play on the UK economy. So what's the outlook for Lloyds and RBS is uh, income case. What's the outlook for the UK economy? Incredibly uncertain, uh, really, really unknown. So you'd, you'd probably have to put them on the uh, on the dividend watch list as well. Mm. What about what about the miners? I mean, there's some big, big payers there. You've got BHP, Glencore in that list. Um, I mean, can they, can they pull the same trick as the oil majors cut CapEx? Uh, yes, they can. And I think particularly for, for Rio and, and BHP, iron ore prices haven't collapsed as, as other commodity prices have to the, to the degree that, that some people think they should have. So that builds in a degree of safety because they have these enormously, um, enormously profitable, uh, low cost operations there, which, you know, in the last few years have really, uh, have really sort of motored their, their shareholder returns. They aren't nearly as indebted as they were uh, in the commodity collapse in, in 2015, 2016. Their balance sheets are in, in better shape. And they've also shifted their dividend policies to a more f- more flexible model. So they aren't promising progressive dividend increases year after year. So I would expect I would expect cuts there, but I wouldn't expect wholesale cuts. Glencore, slightly different issue, a lot more debt. But then again, they're, they're their base dividend payout each year is, is actually quite low. So the, the real income case from Glencore shares come from um, top-ups and buybacks, or that has been the case at least in the last few years. Mm-hmm. I mean, looking at, looking at that list as well, there are some companies, some very large UK companies that instinctively look a bit more protected from this crisis. Uh, Glaxo, uh, AstraZeneca, Vodafone, but the yields, they're, they're sort of trailing yields they're offering are, are nowhere near the sort of level that the, the likes of Shell and, and, and the banks are offering. I, mean, I, I guess that that's because they're seen as somewhat safe havens at this time. Yeah, exactly. Though, I mean, I mean you know, Big Pharma has, has not been immune to fears about about uh, suppressed demand this year and, and falling revenues. So they're, they're not entirely insulated either. What we did, did look at in the feet, feet in the feature and it, you know this is an option for for investors who, who might just be looking at share prices you know regardless of of, of the quality of the blue ship name and, and just be thinking there's just too much risk here and we really don't want to be taking a binary call on is the dividend dividend going to be there in six months or is it going to be cut uh, yeah in the in, in the piece we highlight this you know there's a few interesting examples of dislo- dislocation price dislocation in the retail bonds market if you can get in and liquidity is obviously not amazing in the, in the retail bond market at the moment but that, that market has been hammered in recent weeks and you know if you're willing to bet some of these companies are going to survive and going to be able to carry on paying their borrowings uh, throughout the the, the the next few years those i think that's the interesting place to look at at the moment because that is some, some of the yields there are you know in, into high single high single digits there's a degree of safety obviously because you're you know you're higher up the pecking order when it comes to capital returns uh, so yeah we just highlighted that as, a, as an alternative to some investors you might be feeling you know feeling like there's there's really no degree of safety in in equities at the moment and, and you've got some big names who've uh, who've got some stuff trading on uh, the uh, all market order book for retail bonds aviva that a chartered barclays so, so uh, sse as well we talked about utilities so, so there's some interesting options 
options there that it's definitely worth having a look at. Hammerson, hmm, reads property, wouldn't be so keen on that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Ditto Labrooks as well, I think is trading at a big discount to par, but I mean, the sporting world is currently suspended. So yeah, you have to, you know, that, that has to raise questions about their, their cash flows of the next years and, and whether that might trigger um, bond covenants and the like. Uh, but yeah, there are some interesting names there, which are utility-like um, stocks, which, which you know, you would expect to survive and, and, and therefore their, their income case is, you know, relatively foolproof. Okay, well, that's that's uh, useful looking at some of the sort of uh, uh, fallout on, in terms of, of dividends and what, what that means for uh, income investors, of whom I would imagine there are quite a few amongst our readership. Um, should we talk about some of the sort of uh, news that you've been writing recently? I mean, we, we mentioned Aviva in, in the context of, of uh, its retail bond, uh, but you looked at this a couple of weeks ago in terms of the uh, p- potential impact of COVID-19 on the insurance sector. And it's a little bit vague at the moment, but you would expect it to be massive. Yes, you would. I mean, the... Uh, I think that the two themes we picked out, um, which are very much up in the air at the moment for the insurers are, I mean, it's really two policy lines. Uh, it's travel and business interruption. Travel, probably the, the, the smaller of the two, though. I mean, really, it's the, the quantum is very hard to determine at the moment. So, I mean, on the, I think it was on the 17th of March, the Foreign Office said, uh, recommended against all but non-essential travel uh, to, you know, to anywhere outside the UK. And that, that is the one of the key triggers for claims becoming valid if you're taking out a a, a travel insurance policy. So, you know, for the likes of uh, Aviva, Admiral, Direct Line, you know, to varying degrees, this isn't an an enormous part of their business, travel insurance writing. But the fact that they've already suspended the sale of of travel insurance shows that that market is is not working at the moment. And they're probably going to take, you know, have to look some some fairly large uh, claims there. The, The other aspects, which is quite fairly unknown, really, because it all comes down to the policy wording that businesses take out at various degrees of expense is on uh, business interruption insurance, um, which, you know, is a big, big test for the, the industry. And, you know, particularly the, you know, the likes of Beasley, Hiscox, uh, Lancashire. Um, it's, it's, it's really un, unknown there uh, how how uh, claims might might meet criteria set out in, in policy wording because this is incredibly exceptionally circumstances and whether or not a pandemic would be included within uh, policy wording for, for business uh, interruption is, is really unclear. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's up in the air there. Um, you know, obviously insurers are, are built, their capital, you know, their, their capital structures are built to withstand pretty huge hits from, you know, be it hurricanes or the like. But um, when, we, when we're talking about un, almost unquantifiable um, uh, claims to business interruption, there is, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a large degree of, of uncertainty there. Well, I remember seeing, you know, in you know, the first response of the, the Association of British Insurers was that we're not paying, basically. And I think there's been a challenge to that and business interruption, I think it was. And, and, and that seems to have been overturned now. I think, I think that there is going to be pressure on these companies to pay. And if they don't, well, that has implications in itself as well. So I, I don't know, it feels like an industry that could get a little bit nasty when it, perhaps when this crisis is behind us and uh, and it all starts to play out, the claims environment. You know, it's so opaque really because if you're, you know, if you're a small business, you're probably the, the, the ABI, the, the, the Association of, of, of British Insurers, is saying that if you're, in most cases, if you're a small business, you probably won't be covered. But obviously, the, the larger the business, the larger the policy, the more detailed the wording is going to be, the, the, the greater the potential one-off payouts or claims could be. So yeah, we're really in the dark at the moment um, as to the, the hit to these businesses. None have warned so far, which, you know, potentially is a, a, a sign that, you know, were things truly looking dreadful already, they might have had to have said something. But um, yeah, very much up in the air. Well, we've, we've seen lots of companies putting updates at, at, about the impact of COVID-19. And you're actually coordinating a big aggregation of all this at the moment. So uh, p- perhaps we hear something very soon from uh, from the insurers specifically. I mean, the other piece you've written this week. So we talked about banks very briefly, which you covered a couple of weeks ago, uh, asking whether they would face a hit from the coronavirus, which it seems that they will almost inevitably. Um, the other piece you've written this week, which is absolutely fascinating, is about risk management and the risk models that, that large companies and financial institutions have been using using uh, for years to manage potentially what you know the, the risks that their, their business may face and and basically they don't seem to have worked talk us through this piece it's absolutely fascinating the point was not really to beat up the industry for not seeing covid19 
uh, coming. Uh, I think with the exception of some epidemiologists, no, no one really saw this, uh, this coming. It's, it's really to look at what risk management tends to focus on. Uh, in recent years, that has all been about geopolitical risk. And the narrative, uh, I think it was the, the point it's trying to argue is that the narrative has become sort of really too dominant in the wide uh, universe of, of potential risk to asset prices. So every outlook this year was was in, entirely focused on geopolitical risk and the you know sort of international flashpoints which could affect asset prices. Well, the, the year certainly started off that way. I mean, obviously there was the, the sort of flare up between the US and Iran um, and the assassination of a, of a leading Iranian political figure. So, so that it did seem kind of that they were on the money there, but that didn't really do anything to markets. This is, uh, it, or if it did, it was very temporary. It was temporary, and I suppose we should say, you know, the geopolitical risk doesn't go away. Those those are real risks, and those are real risks to asset prices as well. It's almost like the the nature of risk management is always to be focusing on on the the known uh, threats. And even when this crisis was was unfolding, risk management experts were you know were talking a lot about the impacts on China and how China is now a bigger part of the, the global economy. So the effects are therefore going to be seen on on, on global asset prices. You know, without much common that you know this is a, uh, an aggressive virus which has the capacity to, to to spread to the rest of the world and you know what are then the impact impacts on, on on global asset prices so I mean really I think one of the wake-up calls for you know what is known as risk man- risk management within banks and asset managers and you know very well resourced uh, institutional capital is, is really is the model they are looking at uh, functional if it's always going to be on the last thing the last threat that's been identified. Well, I guess it's interesting looking at the failures of risk management from, from the professional community, uh, from a private investor perspective. Um, just, just goes to show how, how hard it really is to kind of sort of see into the future uh, and what may be coming down the road that could put a big, huge dent in your portfolio. Yeah, and I, I suppose, I suppose you know, potentially one of this is, is really just to noting at how inadequate risk management models are potentially. That may just dampen the, the appetite for you know, in the years ahead for the, the real risk investors are prepared to to take on, whether that be reflected in, you know, valuation multiples or the kinds of risk assets that, that investors are prepared to hold. That could be one large, you know, secondary impact from the current crisis. Absolutely. I mean, it's something that Phil Oakley has talked about a lot, that, that investors had started to look at equities as though they were risk-free, uh, which obviously uh, they are not. And I guess there is one answer to all this, um, which is to diversify a bit better, which, uh, which a lot of people really forget about it has to be said and also that markets will recover at some point but a lot of pain in the interim alex thank you very much for that it's really really been very useful good to see you yeah good to see you and good good to talk and uh, yeah all the best for uh, for where you are yes they will hope you lock down in soon you need to get out for a, a bit of exercise i'd imagine <laughs> see you later so now i am joined by phil oakley um to talk about a mad week on the stock markets phil what's your take on what's been going on it's been uh, it's been pretty pretty uh, up and down it has I'm not sure what to make of it, really, John. I think um, the stock market is behaving like a manic depressive. <laughs> and it, it is, uh, I don't know. I mean, I think there's so much now that, you know, there's so much electronic trading now. You know, there's so many algorithms, computers accounting for so much of the volume of the stock market that they can, you know, really sort of exacerbate any moves in the market. Um, but it's quite clear that the stock market wants to rally after having such a such a really rough time. Of- I mean, the big move, which was nine percent on the S and P, eleven percent on the Dow Jones, biggest biggest one day move in you know since nineteen thirty three. That obviously came after the uh, the Federal Reserve and the uh, the US government st- started to really sort of uh, open up their wallets. Huge, huge stimulus programs. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think. You know what's what's the Federal Reserve going to be buying next? You know it's gone from moving, you know, from buying government bonds. It's now buying municipal bonds, corporate bonds. Um, it's been buying ETFs, uh, and it'll probably be buying stocks next week if we keep on going the way we're going. Um, and it doesn't really solve anything as far as you know the virus is concerned, as far as the locking down of society and economic activity. I think what it does do is it provides a degree of confidence that somebody out there is trying to help with this. 
Yeah, I mean, what do you think it's going to do for the markets? I mean, this 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 level of, uh, of of monetary and fiscal support. I mean, can we see? Will we expect more rallies? Or I mean, it's as you say, this isn't solving the virus problem. Could we see further downside from here? I think we could. The honest answer is that we don't know. There is there is just very little visibility out there. When you say visibility, you mean in terms of where profits are going to come from in the future and when, when we're going to see, see some bounce back in trading. Yeah, there's that. And obviously, the, the, the main thing is, is that there's still not any real visibility of when the virus peaks and when all the actions stop the virus. So people staying home, when people are allowed to go and return to normal again, we still don't know when that's going to happen. And obviously, we've seen, you know, you know, we've seen the implications of it an hour ago with you know, huge rises in, you know, in unemployment claims uh, in America. And we'll see that in this country as well. And we'll see it everywhere. So I, 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 I think these market rallies are unlikely to be the bottom and the beginning of a new upwards move in the market. Um, I think they are typical of what you get in situations like this. You know, you may get, you know, things like, you know, I mentioned sort of algorithmic trading, computer trading. You know, you'll get some short covering uh, by hedge funds who have who have sold stock short. They've made a nice profit. They'll buy they'll buy things back. And if if you get these events all coming together, you can get a very sharp rally in the stock market. I think in terms of of business fundamentals, nothing really has changed. And if anything, the news is is getting getting worse in terms of the fact that you've got companies coming out saying that they're shutting down their factories, shutting their shops. And um, the thing about visibility is they say, look, we can't give any any guidance. We can't give any guidance on how much profit we'll make. So for me, it boils down to you know how how does an investor value companies, price companies, if they can't see what's going to happen? They 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 have to work on the assumption that this will end, which pretty much it will, hopefully, and that we'll get back to normality, and then they'll take a they'll take a view on that. But you know. Whether that's the right view, who knows? I mean, we've had a very interesting week um, on the magazine. We uh, we had to essentially chuck out half of the uh, the company section because the FCA uh, at the weekend announced a moratorium on company reporting. So we have no company results. And even if we did, we have no reliable forecasts upon which to base a view on the future. So it's becoming very difficult to even write about companies. I can't imagine what it must be like for investors with, with zero information, essentially, current information to work from. What do you do? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. It is hard to it is hard to write about about companies, and uh, I think the only thing you can do, and this is probably something that you should do all the time, is that you know I always you know always of the view you know when you come down to the basics of investing in stocks, is that the share price is one of the most valuable bits of information that you've got. And if you have, you know, a company share price and you have a some form of profit number, it might be last year's profits, average profits, you can kind of reverse engineer the share price to work out what it's saying about future profits. And you can, you know, there is there are sort of simple ways of doing that, sophisticated ways of doing it. I mean, the simple way is you just people will just look at the trailing price earnings ratio. So they will look at the P/E ratio, which is obviously the most popular yardstick of valuing companies, and look at what it stacks up on last year's profits or trailing 12-month profits, because that's the last number that you've got. And then you take a view on two things, really. The direction of profits in the next 12 months, most likely down. And then, then it's the you're taking the view of when this comes back, has the has the ability of this company to earn profits and grow profits changed materially? You know, is has there been a material change? Now you can't answer that fully, but you can kind of begin to take a view 
Um, and my view is, is that company profits will come back, but they might come back slower than people think they will. And they may not grow to the extent that analysts and investors thought they might. And then just to add on to that, just to make it even more complicated, but this has been this has been a real hard lesson in risk um, for investors. Not just investing risk, but also business risk. And that experience or the current experience that we have is unlikely to disappear from people's minds very quickly. And what I think that may, means in plain English is that we may get a situation where investors will not be hurrying to pay the kind of valuations for shares that perhaps they were doing four to six weeks ago. So you add that together with the fact that earnings will take a bit of, a bit of a time to get back up to speed. And, you know, it's a, it, we could be in for a bit of a grind here in terms of in terms of share price and share price recovery. Mm. In fact, there's, there's a couple of things you mentioned there. Risk, which Alex Newman wrote about this week, uh, and actually we talked about just before we uh, we we started to speak. Uh, Chris Dillo has written about scarring effects. So, what does a market like this do to people's attitudes towards investing in the future? And Mr. Bearbles actually written about how you can how you can look at a company share price and see what that's saying. So, all of those things you mentioned are actually in the magazine this week, and uh, all, all very very useful um, exercises and insights to take on board. So, so in your Alpha report this week, you talk about trying to find opportunities in the economic fog and one of the things you talk about is looking at debt-free companies how important is it to be debt i mean it's it's not been very fashionable uh in recent years to have a nice cash rich balance sheet Uh, are we going to see a change of attitude there as well yeah i think so um i mean you always you always get it after a shock when things are going well companies like to take on debt and often told they haven't got enough of it and then when things go bad they realise they've got too much, and they need to get rid of some of it. And um, you know, we're seeing that. We're seeing. You know, we saw a placing from SSP yesterday, which is not just. A, that's about survival. As Wait, well. Do, I mean, that's a that's a company yeah, that you that's a company you like as well. So, I, I do, yeah. <laughs> um, it's but, difficult to like it. Difficult to like you haven't got any profits. No, but then, but, um, but then, it, you, you would never have thought of a situation where it didn't have any customers. So that. So it, so it is quite strange. Well, this is it. I mean, it was incredible, really, that, you know, just just going off at a tangent, incredible, you know, this company came out yesterday and placed, you know, what was equivalent to 20% additional shares onto the market uh, to raise, I think, about 215, 216 million pounds, just to essentially tide it over so that it can, so that, you know, after this is finished, it's still alive, and I think I think we'll get I think we'll get more of that. Um, I think we'll get more rights issues. I mean, placings are horrible. I mean, placings tell you how desperate that was because you know the, the existing shareholders are getting royally done over uh, with a with a placing like that. But you, but you know, rights issues you have to put a prospectus together. And that takes time, and clearly SSP didn't have time, and that's that's understandable. But I think yes, we will get we will get more um, more repayment of debt, more equity issuance, um, and I think that investors will interpret companies with debt with a little bit more scepticism than perhaps maybe they've done so far. Yeah, I mean there are companies out there that do have you know debt-free balance sheets um, that are run in a very sort of old-fashioned way. Some of them have got, you know, pension fund deficits and they, they've they got leases, which, you know, a lot of people see as debt. But there are companies out there that operate with no borrowings at all on the balance sheet, in a very sort of conservative, old-fashioned way. And uh, there's a lot to like. There's always been a lot to like about that. And I think even more so at times like this. Um, but I think you know that still doesn't still doesn't mean these shares are a buy. But I think you know there are companies out there with debt-free balance sheets that do are beginning to you know look a bit interesting. If you 
if you believe that we're not at the end of the world. You know, I'm looking at the list you've published in your Alpha report this week, companies with debt-free balance sheets, you know, and, and actually I recognise a few of these as, as, as in certainly in, in recent history or going back, you know, not too far, having a very strong family ownership element behind them. Interesting. Very interesting. So conservative, conservative management. Well, I think if you just talk to any, any business person, you know, who runs a private business or a small business, they hate debt. They don't want debt. They don't want to be beholden to other other parties for finance. That mentality is, ah, I quite like it. You know, it might be a bit old-fashioned, a bit conservative. Uh, but at times like this, you, 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 you're quite thankful for that type of attitude. There is one company on that list, uh, Persimmon, uh, which stands out. Um, it's a house builder, obviously. Um, and it stands out in the fact that it, it, it's it's hacked its dividend away this week, as have a number of other house builders. But it is a sector that has been fairly cash rich. What's your take on that? Alex and I spoke about it earlier. I think, you know, these builders hold a lot of cash because they've been hard in the past. And the other thing as well is you've got to be aware that with balance sheets, that often on the balance sheet at the year end isn't cash that you have in your bank balance throughout the year. Companies will tend to present their balance sheet, their year-end balance sheet, in their most most favourable terms. The other thing as well is with builders that you have to be wary with is that builders often buy land on credit, and so they have uh, land creditors. I've not looked at the position um, for persimmon on land creditors. I, I don't know if creditor position or not, but Really, a land creditor is debt in all, in all but name. It isn't, it isn't classed as such on the balance sheet. But I think the fact that they've pulled their dividend, pulled their, um, their special di- dividend as well, tells you that even with you know, 800 million plus of cash on the balance sheet at the last balance sheet date, um, this is still a business that needs as much cash that it can get its hands on. And that, that's telling you something. So I think you know it's telling it's telling investors that the balance sheet at the year end is just a snapshot, and quite quite often the cash demands on a business are a lot higher than the, than people expect. That's what we're learning at the moment. But I do think I do think the builders I do think the builders are it's not a sector I like, but um, you know their share prices now are some of them looking quite depressed. Yeah, and I mean, that, that list of companies you've, you've got in the Alpha Report, they're, they're, they're all companies, a lot of nice companies in there, but I mean, you know, maybe not, not ones to buy right now, given, given the backdrop, but certainly ones to keep an eye on. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, I know you wanted to, uh, to, be a, to strike a more positive tone this week, Phil. It's been hard to do that uh, in recent conversations. Um, so to do that, I mean, let's focus on first your magazine column this week, um, which was about Microsoft, which is a great company. And uh, a share of potentially for both good and bad times. What, what's your thinking behind that view? Yeah, I think it's, it's an extremely good company, and it's it's interesting that if you look at if you look at a lot of the funds, uh, very good funds that have done well um, in the UK. Some of the you know Terry Smith's fund, the Blue Whale fund, um, they own big positions in Microsoft. And um, Microsoft has been great on the way up and it's been great on the way down in terms of, of defensiveness. And, you know, it is it's a remarkable story, actually, Microsoft. Um, you know, five, six years ago, this company, you would genuinely question what the future of this company was. It, it, it had been everything was about the Windows operating system. Um, it had a go at, um, you know, it bought Nokia. You know, how many people remember that it bought Nokia? And it, try, it was trying to, you know, trying to get into the phone market. I sadly had one of its phones. I had a Microsoft phone, which was essentially a, a rebadged Nokia. And, yeah, I'm, I'm, I've got yeah, an Apple phone be, now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and it seemed to be a company that was just missing out on all the big trends in tech. You know, in terms of phones, social networks, um, that kind, that kind of thing, and then they got a change of leadership, and uh, the guy who's running it now is is the guy who was behind, who was running um, Microsoft Azure, which is the um, cloud cloud computing business, and 
essentially Microsoft is you know it's turning itself into a only a cloud cloud company in terms of offering cloud-based um, um, computing services to to businesses, governments, and, and that kind of thing. But it's it, it's software as well. You know, we talked about Sage uh, a few weeks ago on the podcast about how that was moving its business to to the cloud. And um, if you look at like Microsoft's two big big products, Microsoft Office or Office three six five is a cloud-based program and also it's dynamics which helps companies run their business better in terms of managing their finances supply chain and customer relationship with that kind of thing that is a cloud-based bit of software so it's got its it's it's got a really big big footprint in the cloud from from offering it as a service and also selling its software products on that basis as well and this is serving it really really well it's it's allowing it to do very very well and um, the the revenues from the these businesses are are growing rapidly and you know as with a lot of software companies um software sales once you once you've invested in the capacity um and then you start covering the cost of that capacity or the software cost each incremental sale starts adding a lot of profit and this is the main driver why Microsoft is just incredibly profitable. Uh, it's incredibly profitable. It's incredibly cash generative. A lot of its business is also coming through on subscription. Um, you know, the office business, you know, office used to be something that you bought a computer. Um, it either got installed on it when you bought it or you bought the DVD and stuck it onto your computer and you forgot about it for the next five or six years until you thought, actually, I need a new one. Now, you don't do that. You buy it through a subscription. And Microsoft makes more money out of it. And it keeps the customer. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a business that does face a lot of competition. Uh, but Microsoft's holding its, holding its own very well. It's got the scale. It's got the brand. There's a bit of economic risk there. I mean... You know, selling software to businesses, possibly not the best place to be when we're about to go into what looks like it's going to be a pretty severe recession. Uh, no, but if you've got your workers working at home, having them on being able to use Microsoft Office and connect to a cloud is also a big plus. So that, so the, the, there's that as well. Um, there is a risk on the cloud-based business if we start, you know, there is, there is economic risk. I mean, in, it, the cloud-based business tends to be based on a pay-as-you-go. So the more of the infrastructure the customer uses, the more that they pay. And I think it's also worth worth saying that there are, you know, there's bits of economic risk in from other parts of the Microsoft business. You know, if companies are laying off workers, they own LinkedIn. LinkedIn is a big ad, ad business. And also Bing, the search engine, gets a lot of ad revenue as well. That's That's... That's an ad business. So there's incremental bits of risk there. They're not the main revenue generators of, of Microsoft as a whole, but there are incremental ad revenues, incremental sort of usage revenue that could come back. And obviously you've got you know an element of, of profit risk, profit risk there. I think I think the one thing that puts people you know, it's interesting we're discussing discussing Microsoft with a few people on Twitter yesterday. Some private investors are put off by the currency risks, some UK investors. And I, I get that if you think, you know, if you think that sterling is going to rally back to sort of 130 plus. And obviously, obviously, investors have got to take a view on that. I could put a view, a very bearish view on sterling right now. Um, but but yeah, I mean, that's obviously something that UK investors have got to make their own mind up on on US shares. But, you know, looking at the overall business, it's still quite expensive. It's still quite expensive. It's still on about 24 times earnings. Not as expensive as it was, though. The share price has pulled back from, from highs um, quite, quite sharply. Yeah, yeah. As is everything. But, yeah, uh, but then, uh, then buy good businesses when, they've, when they're not as expensive as they were. Yeah, the question is, does Microsoft get lower? You know, do, do you get greedy and think that you can buy it at a, at a cheaper price than you can now? And obviously, I don't, I don't know. That's, that's, an, that's for an individual to call. It's a really, really nice business. 
you think, you know, when the economy settles down again, that there's still quite a lot more growth in this, you know, particularly from the cloud computing side. Um, so yeah, it's 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 um, it's a really nice business. I enjoy, very enjoyable piece to write. And one for the watch list, if nothing else. Should we talk about a UK company uh, that you've got your eye on, Penon? Well, we spoke about utilities last week as a as a source of source of dividend income. I think at the moment that still stands. Um, I don't think we're seeing water companies or National Grid coming out, famous last words, but coming out and saying they're not going to pay their dividend. What I like about this, I mean, I, I wrote a piece on on Penon, I think last year in the magazine about the the waste business. And um, how I really like the waste business as a as a source of non-regulated earnings. Well, last week um, Penon sold its waste business, Viridor, and whilst I'm a little bit sad about that because I thought it was a very good business, the price that um, Penon have got for it is very good news for shareholders. Um, they sold this for 4.2 billion pounds, and that equates to a uh, an EV EBITDA multiple, which is a popular metric in in investing, of 18 and a half times, which is punchy. And management deserve a lot of credit. They sold it to KKR, so good luck to them trying to get something out of that at that price. But what it means is, if you take that 4.2 billion, um, they're going to get about 3.7 billion in cash because there's a few adjustments going on, things like debt and all that kind of stuff that stays with Penon. That can wipe out. That can wipe out all of Penon's debt. You know, its net debt was about 3.2 billion. So you're getting 3.7 billion of cash. So effectively, you're left with a water company with no debt. Now, the last time water companies had no debt was when they were privatized in 1989. And what happened was that they all got geared up with special dividends and all this kind of stuff. And I think we will see a nice special dividend, hopefully. Uh, management said they are going to pay some of this money back to shareholders. I hope it's done with a special dividend and not a buyback so that investors can actually pocket something from this. But I think what it does do is I think it makes Penon a takeover target now because these kind of water business, you know, the water companies have just gone through a regulatory review. Now, Penon's accepted its review. The Competition and Markets Authority is now reviewing that. And I don't think it will be reviewing it on a negative way, but on a positive way. And you've got five years of regulatory clarity here. You've got a balance sheet which is going to look undergeared. I know we've just talked about debt and how bad debt thing is, but for water companies, these are businesses that you can finance with with lots of debt. And either Penon is going to pay more special dividends to get its gearing up, or someone's going to come along and say, "I'm going to buy this and leverage it up." And I, I think that I think that there's a very good chance now that that Penon can be taken over by private equity, sovereign wealth fund or a pension fund that really likes the predictability and stability of these almost like bond-like cash flows. I, I think there's a lot to like about I like this company before. I like it even more now because even though I'm sad about Viridor going, I think the balance sheet now is so, so, so strong. Um, you've arguably got the best water company in the UK in terms of how well managed it is. Um, it's even if it doesn't get takeover, takeover. I think shareholders are going to do quite well, and I think the only uncertainty is what happens to the dividend now, because obviously you've lost an earning stream in Viridor. Um, Penon's been paying a you know quite a quite a nice dividend, four percent increase above inflation for the last five years, and if you look at the other water companies, Seven Trent United Utilities, they're sort of guaranteed now to pay inflation, so 2% plus off a four and a bit percent yield for the next five years. But it would be interesting to see whether Penon's, that, that horrible word, rebased, Penon's dividend gets rebased, 
My guess is that the chance it probably won't be because I think it could probably re-leverage the business from its balance sheet and keep its dividend payment going for the next five years and pay it, pay it from capital, from the Viridor disposal. Um, so, yeah, I really like this company. Obviously, it's not, you know, not the most sparkling business out there that's going to make you really rich, but I'm struggling to find anything bad about it just now. I think I think it's good on its own. I think it's a positive. You should never buy things just on the basis of a takeover, but that balance sheet's going to have a lot of people running the slide rule over it. So yeah, really like that one. Yeah, and you know the fact that it is paying a dividend, rebased or not, the fact that there is a potentially a special on the way is, is a bit of a ray of sunshine in this market where so many dividends have been cut. And I'm just looking at the share price and it's held pretty solid, you know, in what has been a, an absolutely terrible time across the market. So, yeah, I think a lot of people might be thinking the same thing about this and perhaps uh, perhaps our readership should too. Um, thank you, Phil. That's absolutely brilliant. And, uh, yeah, we will uh, chat again next week, no doubt, um, when who knows what the markets would have brought us. Speak to you soon. And let me just talk you all through what else we've got in the magazine. It's been an absolutely crazy week, uh, as uh, as you as you probably know. We've already spoken to Alex uh, about the uh, dividend crisis. Um, the results section was massively curtailed, uh, as uh, as you would have heard by the FCA's moratorium. Uh, we've replaced that with an absolutely enormous news section. There is so much in there, looking at uh, the Federal Reserve's moves, looking at the the U.S. government's uh, fiscal stimulus, looking at telecom and electrical infrastructure, uh, which is under a lot of pressure as we all work from home. You may have heard that this uh, this podcast has been a bit glitchy, um, and I suspect that's because lots and lots of people are watching Netflix rather than actually doing any work at the moment. Loads and loads of news, lots of comment. Chris, as I said, um, with some really interesting perspectives uh, on this crisis, as has Mr. Bearball. And Michael Taylor's looking at Rightmove as a potential uh, shorting opportunity. Uh, all the usual tips. Oh, a stock screen. Uh, from Algie Hall looking at shares that are the cheapest they have ever been. And of course, we've got the cover feature, which is the uh, SIP special supplement. Um, might not feel like the best time to be thinking about that, but actually we've uh, we've actually repurposed it to look at how you would build a SIP that might cope with uh, with circumstances like this. And as Phil said, you know, perhaps people are going to be taking a very different approach to uh, to risk and managing their investments in future. So, so have a look at that and you might get some ideas for how to strengthen your portfolio. It is never too late to do that. Uh, thank you all for listening. Thanks again to Phil and Alex. And uh, we will be back again remotely next week. Speak soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.